Today's sermon comes from Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 12. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as for one who men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that for its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Research was published in a psychology journal that revealed pretty shocking, uh, but at the same time, maybe not so shocking correlation in what they studied. Here's what they did they asked some volunteers to think about and write a short essay on a time when they were unkind to someone. Or they, when they were mean-spirited towards someone. Then they asked uh, another group of volunteers to think and write a short essay on a routine event in their life. And then they asked all of the volunteers to stick their hand in an agonizing ice-cold bucket of water and ask them to keep their hand in there as long as possible. And then, afterward, they asked them about feelings of pain and feelings of guilt. Here's what they found. The ones who had thought about and written a, a short essay on the way that they were unkind to someone or the way that they had hurt someone inflicted more pain upon themselves 
they kept their hand in the bucket longer than those who had just written about a normal routine in their life. What they found is that the guilty ones somehow felt a little bit less guilt when they inflicted more pain on themselves. And, and here's what they concluded. We tend to associate pain with justice as a form of punishment. So when we're feeling bad about an immoral act we committed, experiencing pain makes us feel like we have rebalanced the scales of justice and therefore it resolves our guilt. Now, pain is one way that we attempt to remove our guilt. But it's not the only way. There are other ways that we try to assuage our guilt. Like shifting blame, blaming of someone else. And the reason that we shift blame to try to remove guilt is because we know that we can't bear our guilt. It's intolerable. It's crushing. It's debilitating. And that's why we have attempted to find so many unsuccessful but ways of trying to remove guilt. question is, in all those ways, inflicting pain upon ourselves, shifting blame on other people, if all of those are unsuccessful at removing guilt, then how is debilitating guilt removed? How do we remove This is what Isaiah chapter 53 is all about. First, we're going to see that it starts. At the very beginning, it starts with an admission. Admitting your inability to get rid of your guilt. The first three chapters, or verses of chapter 53, thoroughly reveal the human condition. And it's not a pretty thing. Second half of verse 2. E, speaking of Jesus, hundreds of years before Jesus came to this earth in this prophecy of Isaiah, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. To find no beauty in Jesus reveals the absolute bankruptcy of human emotions because beauty is tied to emotion. Verse 3, he was despised, that means hated, and rejected by men. To despise and reject Jesus reveals the misguidedness of the human will. Right? Rejecting someone is tied to the will, the decision that you make. In the verse 3, and we esteem him not. The word esteem is an accounting word. It means reckoning of value. So to assess Jesus and come to the conclusion that he is nothing reveals the corruptedness of the mind. Right? To assess value in the mind, that's the devil. Your heart, and the Bible would speak of the heart, I'm not talking about just the physical world, your heart is the control center of your life. And it involves your emotions, your will, making decisions, and your mind or your intellect. And what Isaiah is saying here in the first three verses is that all faculties of your heart, the control center of your life, 
our bank, your emotions, your will, your mind are broke. And so they can't assess who Jesus is. And that's where Isaiah, that's the point he's making here. On the basis of human observation alone, you will never, never accurately assess who Jesus is. On the basis of your own observation, you will never accurately get right who Jesus is. Look at what happened in the Gospel of John in the course of Jesus' public ministry. In John chapter 12, Jesus' miracles didn't have the impact they should have had. In John 7, Jesus' own family misjudged him. In John chapter 4, the woman at the well had no idea who Jesus was. And then in John chapter 1, even John the Baptist became uncertain about who Jesus was. Now you can hear that. You can say, I can't believe it. I mean, how in the world? They saw Jesus face to face. If I was alive when Jesus was alive in the face of this earth, I mean, I certainly would not have despised him. Or rejected him. And I certainly wouldn't have been one of those people in the crowd who yelling, crucify him. And therein lies the problem. We have an incredibly high view of ourselves. An incredibly high view of our emotional health. Incredibly high view of our will and our ability to make decisions. An incredibly high view of our mind and how we can assess things. And then Isaiah drives this point home in verse 4 when he says, We counted him stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. Not realizing that it was our sin. Not his, but our sin that caused it. I have a friend who many years ago he called into the doctor's office because the doctor wanted to have a discussion about his wife. His wife had been struggling for many years. She'd been struggling with, with mental anguish and stress. It was producing severe physical symptoms in her body. And this doctor had seen his wife over and over. He had run tests. He had asked the diagnostic questions. And so he finally called my friend in the office. And he said, I have run all the tests. I've done all the diagnostics. And I found the problem. And my friend just sighed to the doctor. He sighed in relief. He said, Oh, goodness, this is such good news. Because it's been such a mystery. He said, What's, what's the problem, huh? And the doctor looked at him and he said, It's you. We think way too highly of ourselves. We think way too highly of ourselves. When the only true remedy for the guilt that plagues you, when the only true remedy for guilt stood in front of us in the flesh, our emotions were dead. Our decisions were misguided. Our minds were. 
nothing but revelation from God can make Jesus known to us and draw us to him. Nothing but revelation from God. So how is your debilitating guilt removed? It starts with admitting your inability to get rid of your guilt and your inability to accurately assess who Jesus is on your own. So then how is guilt removed? And this is where Isaiah moves, starting in verse 4, to describing and explaining the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Because that is how guilt is ultimately removed. And so he starts with the substitution of Jesus. Every aspect of your need in the midst of your brokenness was loaded on Jesus. Look at verse 4. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. The grief and the sorrows that plague you that make your life difficult were loaded on Jesus. Verse 5, But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The word transgression means a, a crime. The transgression is that form of sin where you, you break the law, you rebel against authority. And speaking of our rebellion against God, our rebellion against His authority over our lives. And the word iniquity gets more at the guilt associated with uh, immoral acts or moral failure. And so our rebellion against God that plays out in the form of sin, that leaves us with heavy amounts of guilt, that was all loaded on Jesus. So that he could carry it away. Verse 6. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is beautifully illustrated in the Old Testament. In one of the feasts that God's people would celebrate every year. They had a number of these feasts. And these feasts were like uh, word pictures of what Jesus would come and do. And one of these feasts was the Day of Atonement. We read about it in Leviticus chapter 16. And one of the things that would happen at this feast is that Aaron the high priest would, would bring two goats in front of the people, into the tabernacle, the temple. One of the goats would be sacrificed. It would be killed. And the blood from this sacrifice would be taken by Aaron into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, this was once a year, and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And this represented God's wrath that our sins deserve being poured out on a substitute, not on God's people. But then there was a second goat. And the second goat wasn't killed, it was a lot. And Aaron would take both of his hands he would place it on the, the live goat's head, confess all of the sins of God's people, and then send this goat away into the wilderness. And what this represented was the sin and the guilt of God's people being removed, being taken away. 
this live goat that would be sent off into the wilderness. It was called the scapegoat. Now, we, we use that word, don't we? We use it all the time in our culture. That person has become the scapegoat. And what do we mean when we say that? What we mean is that, that somebody's failure or some group's failure, the blame has been shifted from them to this innocent person who now is becoming the scapegoat and taking the blame. Now, we use it in the negative. But that's exactly what Jesus was. He was the scapegoat. Blame got shifted. Our sin and guilt got shifted onto him. And it was taken away. Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. In her book, A Book of Saints, Anne Gordon tells the story of Father Maximilian Colby. Father Colby was a prisoner at Auschwitz in 1941. And while he was there, a prisoner escaped the camp. And so the Nazis, in an act of retaliation, ordered ten of the prisoners to suffer, to starve, and to die. Father Colby offered to take the place of one of these prisoners. He took his place and put Father Colby in a starvation bunker for two weeks. And after they had starved him for two weeks, they then put him to death by lethal injection. Now that is a man who took on the condemnation of another man. And took it off that man and carried it all the way to death. That's substitution. And that's what Jesus did. He substituted himself for you on the cross. This imagery of the two goats on the day of atonement profoundly teaches us how we are to deal with our sin. Let me explain this. Because there are profound implications here for your sin and for your guilt. The first is that that goat that got sacrificed and the blood was taken in and sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant, right, removing God's wrath. Right, that teaches you that when, when you sin, your sin and your guilt, that the, the wrath of God that your sin deserves has been poured out, not on you, but on Jesus. The second, the live goat teaches that your sin and guilt, not just paid for, but it's actually been removed from you. Now, here's what that means. I think most often we understand the sacrifice goat image, that Jesus was crushed for us, that the wrath of God was poured out on him instead of us. I think we, we get that. That's most often what we understand. I don't think we functionally embrace and understand the life in it. Because you can believe that Jesus paid for your sin. 
punishment that you won't spend eternity apart from God. That you'll, you'll be in heaven and not hell. I think we understand that. But you can believe that. And you can still hold on to the guilt over the pain you caused someone. And even the pain you caused Jesus by sending us to the cross for your sin. You can hold on to that guilt and it can consume you for a lifetime. Even though you believe that the penalty's been paid and that you're going to heaven to be with Jesus, you hold on to this guilt for a lifetime. And the reality is that when you are living consumed by guilt, you are holding on to something that doesn't belong to you. Jesus removed it and took it away from you. In essence, you're stealing. I can say it that way. You're taking something that Jesus took away from you and you're pulling it back and you're holding on to it and being consumed by it. When Jesus took it away, it doesn't, it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Jesus. He's carried it away. Now let me speak to a specific kind of guilt that I think plagues many. Oh, mom. You know what mom guilt is? And let me just say, for I describe dad experiences too. Maybe not to the extreme of mom, but mom and dad guilt is too. And here's what it is. I haven't done enough for my children. I have failed my children. I have ruined my children. I'm not giving them what they need to succeed in life. Well, here's the truth. You have failed the children. And you failed the next day. The source of mom or dad guilt is ultimately you holding on to something that doesn't belong to you. Your children don't ultimately belong to you. They belong to God. He has given them to you graciously as a gift to steward, but they don't belong to you. And a lot of guilt comes out of holding on to them as though they belong to you and not the Lord. And then, when you actually do fail them, which is daily, you're human. We're a human. Then when you fail them and you have the guilt that's associated with that perceived failure, then you also hold on to that guilt as though it belongs to you. So you see where this comes from. Number one is holding on to your kids as though they belong to you and not to the Lord. And then when you do wrong, then that guilt you feel, you hold on to it and it doesn't belong to you because Jesus has carried your guilt on. How is your debilitating guilt removed? It's through the substitution of Jesus. He has carried your guilt away. Quit trying to hold on to it. He's taken it away. Second, it's through the willingness of Jesus. In verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. 
Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now, Jesus' substitution is described here in terms of the animal substitution in the Old Testament, lambs or slaughter. So we learn in Hebrews that the blood of an animal could never, ever take away sin. And what Isaiah is saying here is he is driving home one of the main reasons why an animal could never take away sin. And he does this by contrasting the lamb and the sheep in verse 7. Now notice what it says. Just as a, a lamb goes to the slaughter and a sheep to the shearer. He's making the point that both go silently and calmly. And somewhat ignorantly because they don't know what's coming. So the lamb goes to death calmly and silently, and the sheep goes to get a haircut calmly and silently. And the point is, the animals, they're just blindly compliant. And he says, so too, Jesus went silently to his cross to death. Meaning, he didn't physically resist. He didn't verbally resist. He went quietly and calmly. But here's the big deal. Not out of ignorance. Not out of he didn't know what was coming. But out of a submitted mind of will. He had thoroughly thought this out and he willingly was going to his death knowing that that was coming. You say, well, so what's the big deal? Isaiah makes a big point here that Jesus went willingly. Why is that so important? Well, sin is described in Isaiah 53 using some different Hebrew words, and each word is at a different aspect of sin and shines light on sin in a different way. So, you have in Verse 12, sin is described as failure. That word there is in, for sin means failure. In verse 5, you have sin described as moral defect. That's the word iniquity. Now, sin as failure brings guilt. Sin as even like moral defect can bring a, oh, we can't help it. But then you get to the heart of sin. It's described in verse 5 with a little different word. The heart of sin is described as willfulness in verse 5 with that word transgression. Meaning that we sin because we want it. We sin not ignorantly, but willfully. We sin because we want to. Our rebellion against God is willing, and this is why Jesus' willingness is so important. Only a consenting will can substitute for a rebellious will. Only a consenting will can substitute for a rebellious will. This should bring you a tremendous amount of assurance when you sin willfully. Now, let me explain that. There are times where we sin ignorantly. 
where we don't even realize we did it until afterwards. Right? There are times when our sin catches us by surprise. Where we say, I can't believe I did that. But then there's the time when we're tempted. And you stare down a clear path to Jesus. And you stare down a clear path to sin. And you look in the face of Jesus. And we know what we should do. And we turn away. And we choose sin. Now, when we say ignorantly, or it catches us up by surprise, there is some guilt with that. But you know that when you sin willfully, when you, when you look at Jesus and turn away and choose sin, there is a tremendous amount of guilt that piles up. Then I stared my Savior in the face and turned away and chose sin. There's a tremendous amount of guilt that piles up. And it's in these moments that the willingness of Jesus is so important. Because as willfully in that temptation that you disobey God and run headlong into sin, as strong as that willful act of disobedience is, Jesus' willful act of obedience to the Father in the midst of temptation on your behalf is stronger. Hebrews 12.4 says it this way, In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted yet to the point of shedding your blood. Now that's a reference. That's the author of Hebrews taking us back to the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was tempted to disobey his Father's will, to reject his Father's authority and not go to the cross. And it says that temptation was so strong and he resisted that temptation with such strength that he began to sweat drops of blood. So what does this mean when you are in the moment of willful sin and you experience the heaping shame and guilt from having turned away from Jesus' face and chosen sin? It means two things. Number one, in the moment of temptation, when you actually do choose Jesus, the moment when you're tempted and you see both paths and you choose Jesus, that's not the time that you pat yourself on the back and say, wow, I really just bowed up and made a good choice to follow Jesus. No, that's when you praise God and thank God that Jesus' consenting will was given freely to you to choose Jesus. And in the time where you turn from Jesus and choose sin, instead of falling into the pit of shame and despair and guilt, that's the time where you praise and thank God for Jesus taking your rebellious will from you. And being crushed on the cross. 
because they carry away their guilt. Jesus is willful in his act of substitution. It's so important. Because his willful obedience is infinitely stronger than your willful disobedience, which means you can never willfully disobey God beyond some point where he's no longer going to forgive you. Because Jesus' willful obedience goes far beyond your willful disobedience. And so there's great assurance of this. How is your debilitating guilt removed? It's through the substitution of Jesus. It's through the, the willingness of Jesus. But finally, it's through the pleasure of Jesus. Jesus substitutes himself in your place. He does so willingly. But the question is, how does it make him feel? That's a, that's a weird question to ask. But Jesus is human. 100% human. Which means Jesus feels. Felt and feels. Perfect. And his glorified body. How does it make him feel that he substituted himself and willingly substituted himself? Let me, let me try to explain it this way. I want you to imagine that you plan a round of golf with your friends for a Saturday night. And you planned it the weekend before. And so you planned it with your buddies, hey, next Saturday morning we're going to golf this amazing course we've never golfed. You're thinking about it all week. You can barely do your work in golf. You're so excited to go golfing Saturday night. You come home Friday afternoon. And your wife says to you, Honey, it has been an incredibly hard week physically. I am exhausted beyond measure, almost to the point of feeling sick. I know you had a game of golf, a round of golf playing with your friends tomorrow morning, but can you stay home with the kids? so that I can get out for a half day and just refresh and get myself back on track. And you say, sure, babe, anything for you. You have willingly substituted yourself. I'll stay home with the kids so that you can go out. But then the rest of Friday evening, you mope around the whole time at the house. And you don't hide it from You mope around, you pout, you don't hide it. It's very clear that you have willingly substituted yourself, but you are finding zero delight and zero joy in this willing substitution. Jesus willingly substituted himself, but how does that make you feel? Look at verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. He shall see and be delighted. By his knowledge shall a righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. 
says, Jesus shall see and be satisfied and delighted. What did he see? The many being accounted righteous. Jesus saw the ungodly being justified, being declared righteous through his substitution on the cross. And it brought him great delight. Hebrews 12, 2 says, For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. It brought him great delight and great joy to substitute himself for you on the cross. He didn't sulk. He wasn't pouting. He was filled with delight as he did. You say, what does that have to do with you? Let me take you back to the story. You were planning on playing golf. Your wife had an incredibly hard week with the kids, so you willingly substituted yourself and said, I will stay home with the kids. I will not golf, so you can get out. But Friday night, you pouted, you pouted, you sulked around, you denied it. What do you think your wife's level of guilt will be on that Saturday morning while she's out on the night? Pretty high. Because it's very clear that there was zero delight and joy in you. Now, now let's change it up a little bit. So Friday, you say to her, I would love to, okay? And then Friday night, the rest of the night, you're full of joy. And you're delighting over her. And you're delighting over this opportunity to substitute, to sacrifice so that she can get out and refresh. What would her level of guilt be on Saturday morning if that was the scenario? It would be a lot less. Maybe not even. And so did Jesus. He willingly substituted himself for you, and he did it with great joy and delight. It brings Jesus great delight to clear sinners of their guilt. It brings him great joy to take their guilt away. He delights in it. It brings him delight and pleasure to bear your sorrows and your grief and to bear that burden all the way to the cross. It brings him great delight. Jesus, the Savior, says, I love guilty people. And if you trust me, here's the deal. He says, my only guilt will be yours. And your only righteousness will be mine. Will you trust me and embrace me? Or will you continue to cope with your guilt by your own device? We confess that we hold on to our guilt. And we confess that it crushes. It's debilitating. Father, there are people in this room that right now are feeling a tremendous amount of guilt over something they have done. Maybe even as recently as last night.
how the virus cures. Would you reveal to them this beautiful truth of how guilt is removed? That Jesus, your son, willingly substituted himself for us on the cross to carry away our guilt that we would no longer hold on to. And not that he just did it, but, but Father, your word says that your son Jesus did it with delight. That he loved clearing sinners of their guilt. So Father, would you draw every person in this room to your son Jesus by the Spirit? Where they would be cleared of their guilt. And by the Spirit, would you strengthen them to let go of it, to not hold on what does not belong to them. Jesus, you carried it away. Would we believe that? Not just intellectually, but functionally at a heart level. And would it bring freedom and joy and life to broken sinners like us? Pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.